Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. We are currently studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. For more information, visit our website at EdenWorshipCenter.co. We're going to continue in our series we've been going through in Romans chapter 9, looking at verse by verse study of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. We are almost to the end of this chapter. We've been in this for quite a while. We've got a ways to go before we get through the book of Romans. But as you're turning there, I want to just ask you a question. How many of you have ever tried to have, you don't have to raise your hand, how many have ever tried to have a conversation about religious things, spiritual things, or even, even higher, some sort of an argument where you're not necessarily fighting with somebody, but you're presenting an argument, you're presenting what you believe to try and win somebody over in a spiritual conversation. Have you done that before? Have you found how difficult that is? It's difficult with Christians. You can, you can both be believers in Jesus Christ, and as soon as you get talking about doctrinal issues or cultural issues where you disagree a little bit, it gets super hard to have that conversation. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Are we just really bad at talking with each other? I want to make a couple suggestions this morning before we jump in that it has less to do with how we talk and more to do with what we're talking about. See, I'm going to guess that for most of us, when we have had those conversations, usually they're based on what we know or what we believe or what we feel or what we've experienced. Now, here's the problem with what you know, what you feel, what you believe, what you've experienced, all that can change. Your experience can change in a moment. You can hold something as solid, fast truth your whole life, and then in one moment, your belief changes. In one moment, some incident, some revelation comes to you, and all of that changes. That means it's subjective. If you drove in this way, you saw on the sign out front uh, something that Jay said a couple weeks ago when we got together, and it's that belief is subjective, but truth is not. In other words, I can hold something as true and say this is true and solid and unshakable. But what I believe about this and what you believe about this could change all over the place. We've all been in situations where we see something happen. We, we see scenarios unfold. Usually these things happen in our, our houses between husbands and wives. And an incident occurs, all right? Am I talking to any married people here? And as you're discussing the incident, you find that two people in the same room who experience the same things have very, very different opinions on what just happened. You with me? Why is that? Because your belief is subjective. What you believe you heard, believe you saw, believe took place is based on something as changeable as what you can see or think or perceive and not on the objective, meaning outside of you, truth of what is there and unshakable. So I want to give you a caution in any of these conversations. This is a caution for everyday life. This is especially a caution for any spiritual, religious conversations you're going to have, whether it's somebody in the church or outside of the church. Here it is. Anytime your, can you say my? All right, I, I want you to take ownership in this because a lot of times we're good at pointing out other people's faults and not so much ourselves. Anytime that my main argument is how I feel or what I've experienced, it's subjective and it's not a strong argument. Don't argue based on what you feel, think, believe, or have experienced. It will not convince anybody. I want to give you an illustration of this that happened just in the last couple weeks. There is a number of issues that are raging in our society right now, uh, socio-political issues that are infringing on the whole moral, spiritual thing. So we have, we have a lot of religious debate that's going on in the public sector. Just one of these, and I, I don't think this is a capital one, I, I just think it has to be one of them, is the whole thing of same-sex marriage. Now, uh, the Indianapolis Star presented 
two side-by-side arguments on whether or not Indiana, I don't know if you know, but Indiana, uh, the state and state senators, state representatives, they're working on passing a constitutional amendment for Indiana that marriages one man and one woman. And there's a lot of pushback on both sides going on. So here's what they did in the Indianapolis Star. And I've got both articles there for you. One is in support and one is against. And they're both written by Christians. They're both written by pastors of churches. And you can read them for yourself. But here's one I, I want to suggest to you. I've read both of them. Uh, Albert Moeller had it on his podcast, The Briefing. And he always had, if you don't check that out, you need to do that. Uh, get yourself good Christian worldview. But he had links to these articles, and I got on there and read them. One of them mentions the Scripture in about every paragraph. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible shapes our view of the world. It shapes our view of morality, shapes our view of right and wrong. And the other one never one time mentions the Bible. It doesn't mention a verse, let alone even mentioning that there is a Bible. It's all what I feel, what I think, and what I believe. And you know what? I think we're making this, this one topic is a great illustration of the fact that we are really bad at communicating truth with each other. Because we make it subjective. We make it about what I feel and what I think. And that's exactly what's going to be going on in Romans chapter 9 that we're reading. I want you to look down here with me. Because if there's ever been a time that we need a voice to speak to us and say, this is what's going on, this is who you should trust, probably now. We're going to read Romans chapter 9, and I want to start by just reading verse 19 to you. Okay, Verse 19 says this, Will you say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why does God find fault with me? For who can resist his will? Now, let's just pull this apart a little bit because Paul is actually giving us at the front of this passage the entire way that we're supposed to think about, respond, and outside of a Christian worldview, what our reaction is going to be to what we're going to read. He says, I'm going to say something to you that is going to be so offensive outside of the cross of Christ that you're going to literally look at me and go, Paul, there's no way that God can hold me responsible for this because he made me like this. And if he made me like this and it's his will and his will is stronger than mine, then who can resist his will? This doesn't make any sense at all. Paul, your argument doesn't make any sense at all. He tells us up front, this is where I'm going. This is where... What I think, what I believe, what I feel, what I've experienced will take you with this passage outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's why almost every time we read the Word together, we stand to say, God, we honor your Word above ours. We honor your Word above ourselves, and then we pray, God, open our eyes to see your Word, that we would live our lives based on what's inside these pages and not just what's rattled around inside our heads. Amen. So let's stand together. We're going to read this passage together. Romans chapter 9. We're going to read verse 19 down through 29. Let's just do that. Let's just pray before we read this. God, this morning again, we pray what we've prayed so many times. Open up our eyes. Open up our eyes to see your word, to see your truth. Because God, most of the time, all our eyes see is what we think and what we feel and what we believe, what we think we've seen around us. Our view of the world is skewed. It's broken. It's sinful. We have fallen, God. So we stand to honor your word, and we stand as people who are desperate for your word, desperate for truth that is unshakable, that is outside of us. So now, God, we we pray with humble hearts that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to hear your word and that the hearing of the word would cause faith to rise up inside of us and that we would believe based on truth and not based on feeling because you are God from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Romans 9, 19 says, Will you say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jew only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God, bless the reading of your word. Bless our hearts as we hear it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul tells us at the beginning, outside of a heart that has been made alive by Jesus, has been turned on, illuminated to his truth, we're going to look at what he says here and say there's no way this is true. There's no way a God can make us and then hold us accountable for the way that he has made us. Uh, If he does, can we still call it sin? If God made me like this, is it still sin? It's funny that this argument Paul was making 2,000 years ago could have been written yesterday and applied just as well to our context. I read somewhere, and I can't remember exactly who said it. I think it was Matt Chandler. I've been reading his book, Explicit Gospel, which, by the way, is what the guys are going through the video of uh, once a month on the Saturday breakfast. And guys, if I, I realize there was a lot of snow yesterday, uh, but the second Saturday of every month, they're going to be meeting up at Tiffany's at 6.30. You need to get to that. It is crazy good. But I, I heard this quote someplace. I think it was Chandler, but I'm not sure. It says, God has revealed himself to us through his word enough to begin to understand and recognize His character. So God has shown us enough in his word that we can start to spot his character. We can spot his handwriting. We can say, I think I know who this is. But never enough to question his conduct. God's given us enough in his word that we should be able to recognize his character. Recognize that looks like something God would do. To take a broken life, a a ruined life, and to breathe grace over it, to breathe new life into it, and to use it for his glory. Yeah, that sounds like something God would do. But not ever enough to ever look into God and his word and his activity and say, God, you need to change your ways. What you have done is unright. Not just. We were preparing for some of these verses and we were doing some Bible study at home. I may have told some of you the story already. And I raised the question based on some of the stuff it says in here to our family. I, I said, Is God unfair? And the fact that He makes people, He makes men, women, good people, bad people, and then because He makes people, some go to heaven and some go to hell. Is God unfair? You read Romans chapter 9. It's really hard to get away from this. You have to totally read something else into it. Is that unfair? That God would make somebody specifically for destruction. We read those verses just a second ago. My son was sitting next to me on the couch, and he said, yeah, that sounds unfair. So I said, let's take the next step. If that is unfair, does that mean that God is unjust? And then he did what I wish most adults would do. He goes, oh, wait a minute. God cannot be unjust because his character is just. So that means whatever he does is fair. By the way, folks, that's how we look at this world. 
We recognize the character of God. We recognize the word of God. And we say, this is our God. And therefore, what he does is fair and it's just and it's holy and it's righteous. And anything that in our eyes doesn't look fair and just and holy and righteous is because he is holy and we are not. Because our perspective, our beliefs, subjective. They can be changed. God cannot. Here's a good example of this. This did come from Chandler's book, Explicit Gospel. He said he had this experience of getting in his car, truck, minivan, I don't know what it was, but he had his little four-year-old son in the back seat, and they were going someplace, and the kid knew where they were going. But he took a slightly different route than he normally takes, and all of a sudden the little kid in the back seat, you know, he's in his, strapped into his little car seat or whatever, pipes up like, uh, Dad, you know where you're going? And he said, at that point, I wanted to say, yeah, I know where you're going. Do you know where we're going? You know, and just have that little conversation like, I know what's going on. You know, it's that ridiculous when we fallen, weak, finite, which means we're not infinite. We're temporary on this earth. We have limited mental capacity. Most of you discovered that in high school. Amen. If you didn't, you went to college. It all came home. When we're the ones sitting in the backseat going, God, I don't think you know where you're going with this thing. I don't think you got this one right, Jesus. You need, to, you need to pull it, kicking and screaming, as some have said, pull the gospel, pull the Bible into 2014. Let's update you a little bit. You're out of touch. God says your perspective's completely wrong. The question is, why have you made me like this? God, this is your fault. You created me. You created me with these wants and desires. You created me with this body that I have, with this life that I have, the people that surround me. Why'd you make me like this? What are you doing? Here's what we'd love. We would love for God to say, pull up the chair, light the fireplace. You know, he looks like grandpa sitting by the fireplace. Oh, let's just, let's have a talk. Let, let me tell you. See, I had this in mind, and I had this in mind, and then, then I brought this along. And it's like watching a movie where you're kind of lost the whole time, but at the end, the storyteller gives you all the reveals, and you see how all the pieces come together, and you leave going, I get it. I get it. I know why he made me like this. Occasionally, God gives us that sort of insight. He does not here. Look at your Bibles. Romans 9, 19, he says, How can you hold us accountable? How can you say we're at fault? Who can resist your will? And here's the answer. Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you? You could say it like this. Who do you think you are? We, we occasionally use that one in our, our modern language. Somebody will say something to you. They'll, they'll have some challenge to your integrity or your authority. And you look at them and you go, who do you think you are? The question we're asking is them, do you think that you are smarter than I am? Do you think that you have more of an organizational idea of what's going on here than I do? And all of a sudden, when we turn and we look at all the questions that we ask God, God, why did you let this happen? And God says, who do you think you are? You need a reminder that I am infinite and you are finite? That I am ultimately wise and powerful and knowledgeable. And it takes one wrong sneeze for your back to go out and you can't go to work anymore. Come on, we're not as powerful as we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. Let me give you a couple Bible verses here. I said we, we need to not base these things off of thoughts and feelings. Let's base it off the Word of God. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says this, In Him, that's Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want you to look at a couple things in there. It does not say, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works most of the good things in our life that we thought they should go that way according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't say that. It says that God operates in the realm in the area of all things. Can you look at the person next to you and say, all things? The fact that we don't have propane, God is using that to bring us closer to Jesus. All things. The fact that we completely ran out of propane at our house for five days and had to, like, 
trying to heat with all other things. And the one night we had to stay up around the clock trying to throw wood in the fireplace because that's all we had. All things. Those things are nothing. I'm literally not affected by any loss of sleep from that at all. Yet there's other things that we carry around into this place this morning that have hurt so bad and cut so deeply that we have a really hard time fitting those into God's all things. But God says, all things are under his control. All things he has predestined according to the counsel of his will. So let me ask you a question. Do you agree? You can disagree if you want to. If someone is like shaking their head like this, maybe move away. I don't think God still does lightning bolts, but... Do you agree that if God is God, he should have the ability and the right to do with whatever he wants to what belongs to him? you agree with that? If he's God, can he do whatever he wants to with what belongs to him? The answer to that is yes. Our problem with that is us. Because as much as we sing it, as much as we say it, you and I would still like to be God over our own lives. We love That God is God as long as God does things our way. And as soon as he doesn't, as soon as our families look a little different, as soon as our finances look a little different, we say, God, I'm not sure you're in this. Let me tell you how to do it. Let me tell you how to run my family, Jesus. A huge mistake. Huge mistake. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world all who live in it. That means God does whatever he wants to with mankind. God does whatever he wants to with this earth. Now, I'm just going to be super honest with you. I love this when I think about God's sovereignty. I hate this when trouble actually comes into my house. Let's just be, let's be real people here, okay? Because sometimes we get all spiritual, all dressed up, we come into church and we pretend to be something that we're not. I'm not saying that we're hypocrites or that we're intentionally being false. I'm saying we don't actually connect the dots where we go, yes, God, I believe you're sovereign, but when my wife ticks me off, I'm going to have an attitude for the next two days. That's me. My wife just said amen, and she wasn't kidding. You know why? Because I don't believe the gospel. Now, I got steel-toed shoes on, but this should stomp all the way on your toes. When these things come, it proves that we don't believe the gospel. Why? Because if it did, we would recognize the fallenness of our own hearts, especially when anger and wrath rises up against people that we love. We would recognize the fallenness of the humanity of our wives, our husbands, our sons, our daughters. But we don't do that, do we? Come on, let's bring the gospel into our houses. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves. God doesn't use lightning bolts. He uses wives and husbands. Well, you don't know you got hit with a lightning bolt until you can see smoke pulling out of your ears. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Dang it, I got to apologize for this one. Come on. We got to learn to preach the gospel in our houses. We, we did it with these kids, right? We tell them, preach the gospel at all times. When you're sitting down, when you're traveling down the road, when you're laying down, we just don't like doing it when the rubber actually hits the road. Hard. God is sovereign over all the earth, all the world. God gives us, through the words of Paul here, an image of two different vessels. Romans chapter 9. He, he says there's a vessel for dishonor and there's a vessel for honor. One that is beautiful and one that is common. One is made for destruction. You got to let those words sink in a little bit. God made vessels, but when he says vessels, he's talking about people. Come on, church, this is a hard truth. God made people for destruction. And he prepared some for glory. Now we sing and shout and clap our hands and say amen, hallelujah, that God has prepared us for glory. But if it doesn't break your heart that there are those living right next to you who maybe God has prepared for destruction, I want to say your heart's in the wrong place.
We justify it. We say, well, it's their choice. Like they, they chose that. They chose to reject God. You know why we do that? Because we have a hard time handling in a non-callous way the fact that God has created something that is made for destruction. Our brains don't like that type of truth. Try reading something different into this passage, though. It doesn't work. Look at it. Two vessels. One for mercy, prepared beforehand for glory. The only response that God gives us to this is, I'm the potter, I get to do whatever I want to with what I make. We don't like that answer. I don't like that answer. But I think the thing it should call us to is absolute humbled brokenness. Because what God is doing is he is working with juxtaposition. I don't know if you're familiar with that word. It's actually a beautiful idea that we see things more clearly when it's placed one beside the other. And he says, what if, right, did you see that in there? What if God desires to show, what's the next word? Look at your Bible, verse 22. What if God desiring to show his, say it again, wrath. You know what we do when we read this? We read right through that as if we, it's not there. We go, what if God desiring to show his wrath? To make known his power, except his power is in the context of what? Wrath. We're going to get to the glory. We're going to get to the salvation. We're going to get to the love. But love doesn't look like anything unless there's juxtaposition with wrath and judgment. Otherwise, love means nothing. Love is the idiots in Walmart telling their kids, if you do that one more time, 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 then nothing will happen. You do it one more time, guess what? Nothing. Keep kicking, kick screaming, act like an idiot. That would make God a bad parent. Now, I don't care what you think about parenting style. All of us are annoyed by that kid. Oh, no. I believe you should let a child find their own way. You know, when they get into their own, just redirect them. Redirect them. By the way, that's based on a worldview that says everybody's inherently good. Our worldview is based on the Word of God that says all humanity is inherently evil, that the heart of man is wicked beyond knowing. We should react a little bit different. So we're just going to point them in the wrong direction. You can say that all day long. And all of a sudden, these people who are like the psychologists against spanking, they're like, I'm going to whoop that kid. Seriously, I'm going to leave the shoe aisle. I'm going to whoop that kid. Because <laughs> we know things to be true in the real world. It's just how it works. We see wrath compared with grace, and all of a sudden grace looks amazing. The point of this passage, the thing I want to keep bringing us back to, we've said it a couple times here, is that no one is beyond the grace of God. By the way, that's on your bulletin if you're looking for stuff to write down. No one is beyond the grace of God. Wait, what about, what about murderers? Nobody's beyond the grace of God. What about adulterers? Nobody's beyond the grace of God. What about thieves? Nobody. Liars? Nobody. You? Nobody. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. Our focus should not be on who is out. The amazing thing about this passage is who's in. Because guess who was out? Everybody. Everybody. Every single fallen human being has rejected God and said, God, I'm going to do things my own way. The amazing thing about mercy and grace is not that some are left out. They were out to begin with. It's the fact that God would ever choose to love messed up people like me. Now, I want to, I want to give you, again, a little juxtaposition here. Uh, I'm not saying that you got to really believe everything that I'm telling you here about election. Uh, it's probably a good idea, but you don't have to. Uh, what I do want to do is superimpose that against all of Orthodox Christian belief. Okay, All of Orthodox Christian belief believes that God made man and woman, right? Amen, you with me? That God made a heaven and a hell, and that some people are going to end up in heaven, and some people are going to end up in hell. Are you with me? This is all of universal orthodox. In other words, they have correct doctrinal beliefs. So our argument is actually over two things. Albert Moeller actually talked about this this week. He is my personal hero. I want to be his baby. Anyways, uh, 
at the conference we were at, Albert Moeller was speaking and John Piper was there. And I, I think I leaned over to Joe and I said, if Albert Moeller and John Piper had a baby, I want to be that baby. <laughs> it's weird, I know. I, it's strange. What can I tell you? Here's the, here's the argument being made. If there's a heaven and if there's a hell, if some people end up in heaven and some people end up in hell, what we're actually arguing about is either, number one, God is not good. God is not good because he creates people specifically for destruction and then he puts them in hell. So the argument is, if that's true, God's not good. Or the other side is God's not competent. God creates people, creates men and women. He says in the Word, we, we've read this, right, that I desire for all all men to be saved. You read that? Yeah. Only what happens? Our free will rises up so high that the will of God for all men to be saved is not competent. It's not able to get over it and get the job done. Jesus tried really hard. He just couldn't get it done. If you hold to either one of those positions, you've got big, big problems. Why? Because we know God's character. We know that God is good, right? So it's impossible for God not to be good. And we know that God is all-powerful. Otherwise, Psalm 24 is out. I'm the Lord over all the earth. I do whatever I want to with it. Except where human beings are involved and then, I don't know, <laughs> they're big. It doesn't make any sense. God is God. So I want to I look at these two ideas of grace and of wrath. I want to put them side by side real quickly and we're going to be done. Grace. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. Here's, here's just a note from the ESV Study Bible. I like to throw these in because I like to encourage you to read your Bible and when it doesn't make sense, to get a study Bible and read some of the notes so that it makes sense. Good talk, everybody. Uh, here's what it says. God, are you guys still with me? Okay, all right, I wasn't sure. God created the world in which both his wrath and his mercy would be displayed. Indeed, his mercy shines against the backdrop of his just wrath, showing thereby that the salvation of any person is due to the marvelous grace and love of God. This is difficult to understand. It's because people mistakenly think God owes them salvation. That's juxtaposition. That God actually has this backdrop of holy, righteous justice. And then in front of that, he says, and mercy triumphs over justice. But we're not talking generic mercy. We're not talking generic grace. Generic grace makes me want to abandon all pacifistic roots that I have. I'm just telling you. And it usually comes in, in like a news feed from somebody who's a preacher who says something about, don't worry about what was behind you. Just God loves you. Just press ahead. And everybody's saved and everybody's loved and don't even worry about it. And I say, yes, amen. Don't worry about what's behind you if it's under the blood. Don't worry about what's behind you because God loves you and has chosen to save you if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, there's a chance that those type of preachers are peddling a salvation and a safety that isn't actually theirs. Not theirs to give. And the people who are receiving it might feel safe for the moment. and might be lost for eternity. Here's what Romans 10, again, let's look to the Scriptures. Romans 10.13 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Philippians chapter 2, and I want to read this from the New Living Translation just to give you a little bit different spin on it. It says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire, so our, our desire comes from God, and the power to do what pleases him. That it is God who is at work in you that you have any desire to follow God or not. Why? Because God made us like this. God has created us with either a desire to pursue him or to reject him. Second Peter chapter 1, and this is kind of long. I'm just going to read it fast for the sake of time. I got it on the screen for you. Chapter 1, verse 3, going down through verse 10, says, His divine power has granted to us all things. Remember I said God is in the practice of working with all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence. So how do we, how do we step into this all things? 
Well, it's easy. We just claim it, right? We just say the words. Magic words. Expelliarmus. There's a few of you right now who know what I just said. Come on. How many of you are Harry Potter fans? You know what I just said. You know what that is? It's witchcraft. Actually, when I just said that, it made me super freaking mad right now. You know why? We have an entire brain of Christianity that is based on, I'm going to say the magic words, and then God has to work. That's witchcraft. Some of you believe that crap, and you wouldn't let your kids watch Harry Potter. You know what we call that? Cranorectal inversion. Good talk. All the power is God's. I realize I've lost a whole bunch of you. I apologize. You're going you're to get a refund when you hit the door. Verse 5 says this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. The question is, why do we do all these good things? Why bother building all those good things into your life? Because God is all loving and he has given it to us to start with. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Here's why we do it. To confirm our calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I want to suggest to you, we don't keep standing. We don't not fall because we did these things. We do these things and it confirms that God has made us his own. You know what? That can be a kid who decides to come live in my house, eat at my table, play with my children to prove that he's one of my kids. That doesn't change reality. But there are those who live in my house and eat at my table and they play with the rest of my children and it proves that they're my children. But we can't work our way into it. We can't work our way into the family of God. God sovereignly chooses us. He sovereignly puts his love on those of us who do not deserve it. We have to discover with our mind, that's number one, we have to prove it with our life that the word of God is true and that the God of that word is true. That's true. Peter says we can never fall. Hebrews says that's an unshakable kingdom. Right? So don't, don't just stop at belief. Don't stop. This is a good message for everybody in this room. Those of you who come to this church, those of you who don't, those of you who've been in the church five minutes, those who've been in the church 50 years, don't stop at belief. Don't stop when your eyes are open and you see that Jesus is God. Prove that he's God in your life. Prove it. Live it. Walk it out. That's mercy. Then we demonstrate the grace of God. Let's look at the other hand, though. The other hand is wrath. This again, this is in your bulletin if you want to write this down. No one comes to Jesus as their treasure and gets turned away. Lots of people come to him as a means to their treasure and they do get turned away. Listen to that again. Nobody comes to Jesus. By the way, this is a Jason spilled this quote on us at elders meeting and I'm not going to give him credit. This is all mine. No one comes to Jesus as their treasure and gets turned away, but lots of people come to Jesus as a means to their treasure and do get turned away. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Earlier in Romans, we read the story of Esau. You remember that? Romans chapter 9, just, just a couple, cha- uh, couple verses previous to this, and it says that Esau traded his birthright, couldn't get it back. And he, he said that God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Before they were born, before they ever did one thing, good or bad, Look it up. It says that. God says, I'm going to put my love on Jacob and I'm going to reject Esau. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me give you some context about how this works. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. You can look it up. You can read it on the screen here. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. That no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Was he thinking long-term about what it meant to have a heritage in the family of God? 
No, he was hungry. He said, this birthright has almost no value to me over a meal. Verse 17 says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and he found no chance. These are sobering words. No chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. The quote was, no one comes to Jesus as their treasure and gets turned away, ever. A lot of people who come to Jesus as a means to their treasure. Esau came seeking repentance as a means to treasure, as a means to his inheritance, which meant he got a double portion of everything his father had. Everything that Isaac had, Esau gets a double portion. What he wanted was money. What he wanted was safety and security. What he wanted was blessing. What he got was nothing. Now here's where it gets super sobering. He sought repentance. We still got it up on the screen there. He was rejected, found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Church, here's where we should get real serious real fast. One of the things that we have measured repentance by in the Christian church is if one time somebody heard one message and they walked up to one altar and they prayed one prayer and I saw a tear. Because if that happened, it had to be real. It had to be sincere, right? I agree it was sincere. But church, we need to start operating from a biblical point of view that says, like John the Baptist did to the Pharisees when they came to be baptized, he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you repent, that's great. That's awesome. Step one. Now we're going to wait. We're going to see if you bear fruit. We're going to plug you in to the life of the church to help you bear fruit. And if you don't, Jesus had strong words. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you abide in me, if you actually get plugged into me, and you stay there, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. If you don't, you're going to be cut off. I made it kind of heavy there. I'm sorry. Here's what I want you to get. Tears, repentance, sincerity. These aren't the things that save us. I wish, I wish they would. I, I wish it would make it so much easier. As a pastor, it would make my job tons easier. Because we, we'll just have video footage of you crying someplace. Say, oh, no, no, it's all good. You're in. It doesn't work like that. Now, I'm not saying that Christians aren't ever going to struggle and get mad and attempt to walk away from God. I'm just going to say that those who God has saved aren't going to do a very good job of it for long. I've tried it. Some of you have tried it. You try and run from God, usually while you're a teenager. That's generally when we try and get this job done. Only God has his hook in you so deep that the whole time you're running, you are one miserable person. And everybody who talks to you about it, because deep inside you know, dang it. God's got me. True for adults, too. All right, we're almost done here. Let's look back at the Scripture. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's get back to the good news here. See, the bad news is that there's wrath out there for those who reject God. For God has created them to want to reject him. But the good news is that Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody gets to come to the Father except by him. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the thing I said earlier about tears and sincerity not being the way, Jesus is the way. Tears and sincerity a lot of times are the response. When God opens your eyes, and I mean, I mean your eyes come open and your heart goes from dead, I don't care, don't tell me, I don't want to know, to alive. Which either means I'm so overfull of joy that God would save me, or I'm so miserable in my sin. The dead people aren't terribly miserable in their sin. That when that happens, our hearts respond with things like prayers and tears and sincerity worship and adding goodness and godliness into our lives. But it's a response. If Jesus is your treasure, you can have all the confidence in the world knowing that even that desire for Jesus to be your treasure was a gift from God. That God gave you that. 
I want to suggest this. If you're in this room today for any other reason than the fact that you want Jesus to be your treasure, you have lots of reason to worry. If you are in church so that God will fix whatever it is in your life, so that God will do whatever it is in your life, you might just be approaching God like Esau did and find no repentance for it. Even if there's tears, even if there's sincerity, because God wants hearts that are surrendered to Him, not using Him to get what they want. Verse 23 says this. Two more things, we're done. That He is prepared for glory ahead of time, even us whom He has called. Not just from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. And I'm not going to go into this a whole bunch. I just want to mention that when He talks about the Jews and the Gentiles, He's talking about the whole of humanity. And He's talking about those who make sense that they're chosen and those that it makes no sense. Oh yeah, you, you look like you'd belong in the family of God. That's what the Jews thought. Everybody else, there's no way. By the way, we're in the no way. Except God has chosen to save us. So the focus is on God's grace and choosing. That God's love, His mercy. Knowing that all of humanity has earned their own spot in hell. We've done it. We've rejected God. Adam got the ball rolling for us. And then every single one of us have in our own way rejected God. God, I don't need you. I'll find my own way. I, I love that you see these bumper stickers today that say coexist. Then they have all the different things, you know, Muslim and Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and all these different things. That all religions are the same. They all lead to God except for Jesus goes, I'm the only way, I'm the only truth, I'm the only life. Nobody gets to the Father except by me. So we can coexist here for a while, and then in eternity there will be a grand canyon that separates us that no one can cross. So if you want to coexist in peace with people right now who are dead and dying and on their way to hell, I don't think that's a smart, loving thing to do. I think our job is to call them towards life. Call them towards repentance. Now you can hear that and be super ticked off. That's not fair. That's not fair. What about those who were born into a different culture? What about those who God, remember those vessels who God created this one for destruction? Another great Matt Chandler quote for you. He says, no one who is guilty wants justice. What he wants is mercy. Nobody who is guilty and they know they're guilty is crying in the streets for justice. Oh, it's unfair. It's unjust. I did this. I should be punished. No, what we're crying for, when all of a sudden all of our sin is before us, as David said, now we... We don't cry for justice. We don't cry for fairness. We cry, God, have mercy. Please do not be fair with me. Because fairness demands punishment. Please take my punishment. Put it on somebody else. Put it on Jesus. This verse ends up with, if God had not shown us mercy, we would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Dude, you got a computer. Go home. Do a Google search on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what there is now where Sodom, Gomorrah, and there were three other cities in that area where God literally rained burning sulfur out of the sky. You can actually see the pictures of molten sulfur that are stuck in the ground where Sodom and Gomorrah should be. And if you look at it from an aerial thing, there's just five piles of ashes. That's it. Without God's mercy, our lives are reduced Ashes. Here's what James says. James 2, verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, he's not saying that you've got to earn your way to heaven. In fact, I don't want you to think that, so I put the whole context up, although I'm not going to take time to read it. What he's saying is if you claim to have a faith, if you espouse something that doesn't actually belong to you, and we know it doesn't belong to you because there's no fruit of it in your life. There's no works of it in your life. In fact, everything in your life testifies to the opposite. And he says that type of faith is dead. It's not faith in Jesus. It's usually faith in us. It doesn't mean we don't have a part. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It just means we can't save ourselves. You can close your Bibles. I, I got one more thing and we're done. We took our kids to a uh, basketball game last night. Our daughter was singing and one was in the dance. 
halftime thing. And they have this time where they let the little guys come out on, on the court and then try and shoot a three-pointer, which for some of them is from about four feet away because they're so tiny they just go all the way up, right? As a dad, I remember when my kids were super little and you'd have a basket and it was a little bit lower. So what do you do? You go get your kid. You know that they can't throw it that high. They, they can barely hold the ball. So you have them hold the ball and then you pick them up and you hold them up. To, any, any dad's ever done this? You hold them up and then they drop the ball. Then you got to go get it again. Right? You do that about eight times before you finally just somehow endangering the life of your child, hold them over the rim so that when they drop it, it's going to fall in. And then the kid's like, yay, I did it. That's what this is. That God picks us up. God grabs dead souls who do not deserve heaven, do not deserve redemption. He gives us life. He gives us height. He picks us up. And then our tiny little failing attempts, he crowns with glory. And he goes, that's my boy. That's my girl. And all of a sudden, there's works that go along with our faith. They didn't earn us anything. Any more than that kid earned a three-pointer. No way. God has done it. He's accomplished it. But it should be sobering to us that there are vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy like us who he's prepared for glory. And here's the sobering reality. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says that we have this treasure. But if you've made Jesus your treasure and he has poured his life, he's poured his Holy Spirit into you, he's poured it into jars of clay. It's temporary, breakable, fallible, to show that this surpassing power, this glory that you contain, it's not from you. You didn't make this. You didn't create this. You didn't work into this. It's God. It's not to us. Stand up on your feet. We're going to respond to the Lord. And as we sing, which I, I love that this is also becoming kind of a tradition, that uh, our worship is actually motivated when we see the truth in God's Word of what He's done for us. And I, I want to encourage you. There, there were some parts of this that actually got a little difficult to even share. Like This is hard stuff to even talk about. Here's the rock-solid truth of salvation. It's not subjective. It doesn't change. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God recognized that we were sinful, and so He sent an all-powerful Savior. He sent His Son who died on a cross and all of the mercy that you were begging for, you got because He put that punishment, He put that justice on Jesus. So I want us to respond to the Lord as we sing in the light of the fact that God has chosen to save sinners like us. Fallen people just like us. So join us in worship.